I'm Michelle Sims, and this is the Beauty in the Mess, a community where people who crave a shift in mindset, personal growth, and connection to like-minded people come together to start rewriting their stories. Through engaging, honest, and insightful conversations, the show will help you embrace the mess to recognize the meanings and the lessons it holds and discover its hidden treasures to help you start making a mindset shift. Let's listen, learn, and reclaim who we were meant to be. Hi, friend. Welcome to the Beauty in the Mess. This episode is about Kevin's last walk with his dad, Barry Adkins. Barry's story is about a father who lost his son from alcohol poisoning and who has been on a journey to find the meaning in that loss and trying to turn that horrible experience into something wonderful or something good, as Barry would say. Barry carried his 18-year-old son's ashes in a backpack 1,400 miles on foot to lay him in his final resting place and also to bring attention to the dangers of alcohol poisoning. He has been educating people and saving lives ever since his son's death. Hi, I'm Michelle Sims, your host. I'm just a regular person who, along with my family, have had our share of messes that we too have had to overcome. Along the way, I got curious as to how others get through their messes and even triumph over them. Maybe there's a better way, a faster way. Maybe we can accelerate our journeys by learning from someone else. That started my pursuit. I think we can all learn from each other through the sharing of our experiences, lessons, and knowledge. Join me for episode 16 of The Beauty and the Mess called Kevin's Last Walk with Barry Adkins. Barry has shared with tens of thousands of people the dangers of binge drinking and his experience of losing his 18-year-old son, Kevin, to alcohol poisoning. The day that was supposed to mark the beginning of Kevin's adult life turned out to be his last, and Barry's message is both a powerful inspiration and a warning about the consequences of even one night of binge drinking. Barry's compelling presentation has saved countless lives and is fulfilling his dream to make something very good come from his own son's death. In 2007, Barry set out on his epic 1,400-mile journey and walked from Arizona to Montana with his son's ashes in his backpack. On a mission to share his story, Barry has reached thousands through media coverage of the walk and presentations at schools and churches and treatment facilities along the way. To date, Barry has shared his story with over 50,000 students and parents across the country. Barry will describe in powerful detail the night his son died and the quiet Sunday morning that he got that knock on the door and how he came up with the idea to walk from Arizona to Montana. This is a lesson in how one decision can not only change your life in an instant, but everyone around you who loves you also. So without further ado, let's dive right into today's conversation. Hi, Barry. Welcome to the Beauty in the Mess. Thank you so much for being here today. We're very happy to have you with us. And I know your life was changed forever around 17 years ago. And you've been sharing your son, Kevin's story ever since. Would you want to give us a little background on Kevin's story? Well, thanks for having me on, Michelle. Uh, Sure, I can give you a little bit of background. I I guess I'll give you background on me. Yeah. First thing I tell everybody is I'm not the right guy to be here doing this. I'm only here because of what happened to Kevin. I never had any plans to share my most painful moment in my life with thousands of people. But as the saying goes, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what I tell everybody. I'm, you know, I'm not a public speaker. I never was. I never had any interest in doing that. But here we are. So you want me to tell you a little bit about what happened that night? Kind of jump right into it. Yeah. Before you say that, though, I would like to interject that I don't know if you've heard this saying, but God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. <laughs> that yeah. is correct. Yeah. That's that's something my wife pointed out a long time ago. She said, well, God chooses the unimpressive to do his work. So I qualify. <laughs> well, from everything I've read about you, to be honest, I would not call you unimpressive. I mean, you've had quite <laughs> the journey. You've turned this into a great mission. And I, I wouldn't call that unimpressive in any stretch of the imagination myself. It's one of those things that it was a life-changing event. Basically, Kevin had graduated from high school. He had a job right out of high school making good money. So I agreed to co-sign a loan so he could buy a new truck. I'm hoping that he will find a truck from a private party. I'll go down to the credit union, sign papers and be out of there in five minutes. But I got to go to a dealership. And I don't know about you, but I, if there's anybody listening who works at a dealership, I just that, that experience is never very good for me. And I go sit down in the, the dealership, you know, in the financial guy's office. And the first thing he says to me is, how about some life insurance? And I'm like, look, dude, I don't, I don't, I'm not here for life insurance. I don't need life insurance. And he said, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about your son. Well, I'm that guy. I'm that guy who rather indignantly told him that 18-year-old boys don't need life insurance because they don't die. Wow. But I was wrong. They do die. He wouldn't live long enough to make a single payment on that truck. That's sad. So he got the truck. A couple of weeks later, he decided he wanted to move out. And I remember him coming into our living room and he sat down in this brown chair that looks out over our backyard. And he started talking about how he couldn't believe his life was finally beginning and he wanted to move out. And I did my best to discourage him because, frankly, we really never had any problems with him. He was the baby of the family. We never had any problems with him. But I didn't have any luck talking him out of it. A couple of weeks later, his buddy Craig came over. And they started the process of moving him out. He's 18 years old, right? He threw a bed, a TV, and a dresser in the back of his truck. That was his idea of moving out. But I remember he came back in the house and... He walked in the living room and he said, I'm not going to take my toothbrush with me. I'll come back tomorrow and get it. I walked out front with him like I normally do, gave him a hug, told him that I loved him and to be careful and watched him drive away. It was the last time I saw him alive. Wow. That night, his friends decided to have a housewarming party for him. Started with a keg of beer, moved on to shots. He actually left a voicemail for his sister that night talking about how drunk he was and how much fun he was having. He's laughing and all of that good stuff. But he passed out a short time later. They laid him in his bed on his side in case he vomited. But his buddy Craig was worried about him and kept going back in to check on him. Around 4 a.m., calls started coming into 911. First call was difficulty breathing. Next calls were not breathing. My son died alone in a hospital 
while I slept peacefully in my bed. So sad. It's something that no parent ever even wants to imagine, let alone to go through. I'm very sorry for your loss. That's the interesting part about it. The next morning, 8.30 in the morning on a Sunday morning, we're sitting around drinking coffee. My wife and I are drinking coffee and the doorbell rings and we weren't expecting company. And I open the door and I see two police officers and somebody in plain clothes at my front door. It should have been a big red flag, right? But again, I'm that guy. It didn't even occur to me that something bad had happened. I actually joked with them as they came in thinking this had to have something to do with a dog or a parked car. I didn't know why they were there. They didn't laugh at any of my jokes. One of the officers walked in and stood in front of that brown chair that Kevin had sat in two weeks before. He said there'd been an accident. Your son is dead. Wow. We ask who, because we have a number of children. They said it was Kevin. And they handed me his driver's license. There's just something pretty final about it when that happens. Because until that exact moment in time, you're holding out hope. And you don't want to believe it. This is all big mistake. Yeah. So I can only imagine that you're in complete shock at that point. I don't know how you even comprehend. Yeah, it's a mind-numbing experience, to say the least, because your whole world is just, it's turned upside down. He said the probable cause of death was alcohol poisoning, and that's was confirmed later. That's what it was. But it's just a life-changing event. Oh, yeah. So what happened next? I mean, obviously the funeral, but how do you even make it through those next few days? I don't know how you do, because the only thing I can say is that I was angry with God. I freely admit I was angry with God because I didn't know why he didn't take me instead, right? Right. Why take a eight-year-old kid, take me? And I told him that. I had a lot of conversations where I, I was just angry with him. You know, back up time, take me, don't take him. He's 18 years old. He's got his whole life in front of him. Right. I think that would be a normal reaction for any parent to be angry. Yeah. Well, it was. And then about three days later, I had something happen that was another life-changing event. And I'm going to try to describe it as best I can. I was laying in bed. It's about four o'clock in the morning. And I felt like somebody had just walked into the room. I don't know if you've ever had that sensation that someone just walked in. There was a light, a light I've never seen before and I haven't seen since. And there was a message. The message was that Kevin didn't suffer and that something very good would come from this. Wow. Why again, why I was chosen for this, I don't know. All I know is it gave me a mission. I'm not saying it made everything okay, because it didn't. But with time, I understood. So this light woke you up, in effect? when It It did. It's hard to describe. And I'm not a seance guy or, you know, I'm not any of those kinds of things. I just know what happened. So was your wife in the room when this happened? She was in the room, but she knew nothing about it. So... Did she even wake up? No. No? No. Okay. And... I don't know. I've asked a lot of pastors. I said, does this even make any sense? And they're like, 
God works in mysterious ways. And we clearly, what, what I came to the conclusion is we don't know what he can do. Oh, exactly. And I think if you received that message, you were hearing that in your mind, or, or I don't know what out loud, I don't know which, but you know, to hear the message. I didn't hear the voice. You just knew, right? But I knew what it said. And I don't, again, that gets into details that maybe one of your listeners has had an experience like that. I don't know. But for me, it opened my eyes. That's all I can say. It opened my eyes. Yeah, that's amazing. So going on from there, I guess that was a turning point for the anger, at least, right? The anger subsided. Yeah. And you get through the funeral. And then, I don't know, it's just so hard to even comprehend how somebody makes it. I know a lot of people have to deal with this, unfortunately, and not just alcohol poisoning. Mm -hmm. But the loss of a child is so detrimental. My heart goes out to you. It's just so sad. But then you decide to do something pretty phenomenal after the funeral. And it's Kevin's last walk, right? Yeah. Would you want to tell us about how did you even come up with this idea? Yeah, it's a fun topic for me. I enjoy talking about it, especially when it's 17 years in the rearview mirror. But you know, it kind of started when I went to pick up his ashes. We decided to have him cremated. And, you know, you walk into a funeral home and there's nice pictures on the wall and they're playing music in the background. They took me into a nice office, set me down a big, comfortable chair with a desk in front of me. And a funeral director walks in and sets an urn down in front of me. An urn that held all that remained of the kid that I burped. I changed his diapers. I coached baseball, basketball, soccer, football, taught him to shoot a gun and swing a golf club. All that remained to him were sitting in that urn. And there's one thing I knew at that point, and I don't know why I knew it, but I knew that I didn't want to be a victim because the world doesn't need any more victims. We have plenty of victims already. The world needs someone who can take something bad and make something good come from it. And I thought about what I would hope somebody else would do, right? If they were in my shoes. And the answer for me pretty early on was to just get out and tell the story. And I have to say in the beginning, I did a pretty lousy job of it. <laughs> I was a mess and I was just reading off of a piece of paper and that kind of stuff. But a while later, as we were talking about what to do with his ashes, I grew up in Montana and Kevin had been to Montana a few times and always talked about wanting to move there someday and buy a ranch. So I decided to put him in my backpack and walk there again, not to raise money because there's honestly no money in the world that'll fix the hurt. Right. The only thing that helps is to try to make something good come from such a senseless tragedy. And I told the story, I don't know, 30 or 40 times to thousands and thousands of kids along the way. So how many miles was that walk? <laughs> I love talking about the walk. It was about 1400 miles. I managed to get a nonprofit here in Arizona to sponsor it. Uh, and by that, they put up some of the money, most of the money, and they managed all the speaking engagements, right? Because I have to schedule well in advance when I'm going to be where. So during this walk, you're actually doing speaking engagements along the way too? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We had to schedule stuff and I had estimated about 90 miles a week. So we kind of laid it out and said, yeah, I'll be close to that town on this day. And that means I got to do 90 miles a week, right? Uh, but it all worked out way better than I could have asked for. I didn't have a single sick day or weather day. 
That isn't to say there weren't days I didn't feel like walking, but I always thought it might be a little worse tomorrow. So I better get out there and get after it. <laughs> so can I ask what's going through your mind as you're walking? I mean, because I originally, to be honest with you, I thought maybe it was during this walk that you made a resolution with God over this. But, you know, hearing the story of the light coming, I, I realized that it happened before this walk. So what's going through your mind? Are you rehashing what happened? Are you thinking of future? What's going on? All of the above. It's an interesting thing because you can sit and talk about doing this and you can kind of train for doing this. My biggest fear was to get hurt or hit by a car or something along that line. You know, I thought, man, you're shooting off your mouth about being able to walk this far. Can you do it? Honestly, there's a lot of people tried to talk me out of it. I'm sure there was media coverage along the way also, right? There was lots of media coverage, but I have some relatives who, you know, were afraid for me. Oh, yeah. Maybe you should walk two weeks and then do it again next year, that kind of thing. But I decided to just do it. And you think a lot. It's kind of interesting. It's a little bit of, I think the term would be metaphor for life, because in the beginning, I was thinking about that 1400 miles. Right. So I left Arizona and Arizona, believe it or not, has some pretty big hills. And if you think about the 1400 miles, it'll drive you crazy because it's so far. Right. Overwhelming would be the word. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's a good word. Overwhelming. But what I ended up doing was at some point outside of Flagstaff, I thought, well, I'm just going to walk three more miles, take a break and go from there. And so that's what, that was my mindset was, I'm going to do three more miles. My wife, Bev, met me every three miles and take a break and then go again. And that helped me a lot. So what do you think was the biggest thing that came out of the walk for you personally? It's the biggest thing that came out of it. Well, I did something that I never dreamed of doing. And for me, understanding that if you put your mind to something uh, and with the help of God, you can make it happen. I look back on it and I think, I don't know how it happened. It's fun to reflect upon it. I think I discovered that, in short, I think I discovered if I want to do something and the good Lord's in on it, it's going to happen. That's pretty awesome. First of all, how did you determine what spot you were going to leave his remains at? And what's the feeling when you finally get there? The feeling when you finally get there, as you get closer, you start realizing maybe I'm going to make it. Actually, the further I went after I got to about Page, Arizona, the better I felt because I got into a rhythm and understood. The feeling you get when you finally get to the end is it's a relief physically, right? Because I made it, but it's also the end. This is where we're going to leave his ashes. And we ended up ultimately leaving them in a lake up there. We had a public thing where there was a bunch of people came and walked the last three miles with me. Oh, wow. That was pretty cool. And then we had a party after that, and then we left his ashes there. So do you ever go back to that site? Oh, yeah. yeah. We still go back. I, I love it up in Montana. And for all the people in the audience that might be a little older, like my age, the idea to walk actually came from the movie Lonesome Dove. Uh, it was a movie, it was a mini series, I think is what they called it. It was like a four hour, four or five hour uh, mini series with Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Duvall. 
And for those of you that have seen the movie, you'll know exactly what the correlation is, because in that movie, Tommy Lee Jones agrees to carry the body of Robert Duvall back to Texas from Montana to bury him where he was the happiest. Wow. And in my mind, <laughs> that's how it all, and again, I, I, don't, I don't take credit for it, but that's what happened. It's a pretty awesome journey, though. It's an experience meeting all those wonderful people along the way. I can't imagine the number of people you impacted along the way. You get to meet a lot of neat people. I'm sure that would be worth it in itself. I mean, yeah, beyond the major impact of your story. Yeah. So I know you also wrote a letter from Kevin. Did you formulate this letter during this walk? Was it something you were thinking of or when did the letter occur? The letter occurred in the process of writing the book and I'm not an author. I never intended to do that. I actually had a journal and I had a GPS tracker on it. People could see where I was every day. And I wrote a journal. This is back in 2007. So it was a little more difficult to do. But the interesting thing is that I didn't think about writing a book. And I just had a friend tell me, no, you're not just going to print out that journal and send it to me. You're going to write a book. Oh, wow. I have good friends. <laughs> you do. And me, writing a book is more complicated than walking to Montana because walking to Montana, I know what I'm going to do every day, right? But trying to formulate that into a book that somebody that knows nothing about it can read it is, that takes a different part of your brain. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> How long did it take you to write the book? Oh, it was a few years in the making. Sure. I actually read a book by Stephen King called About Writing. And the little tidbits he gave me, they were very useful. And I would print it out and give it to people to read. Of course, your friends in this case aren't really the ones that should read it because they're going to go, yeah, it's great. I didn't want that. <laughs> I wanted them to tell me something. So I actually found a book club that read it. And one of the feedbacks was really pretty interesting. They read it and you know, I went and met with them and went around the room and they said, well, we love this. We love this. We love this. And I said, okay. Good. Now we're going to go around the room again. I need you to tell me something you did not like about the book. And one of them said, well, quite frankly, you spent more time talking about your shoe selection than you did about how you felt when you got there. That's good feedback, right? <laughs> yeah, probably did. I'm a guy, right? It's great that you could ask that, though. It'd be hard to ask for negative feedback, I would think, for most people. But but you need to know. But it's what you need. Yeah. You need it. You need people who can be honest with you. And I didn't, I wasn't, I just said, tell me the thing you like the least or something to that effect. Cause I wanted that. Wow. And I made changes based on that. And this was before you actually published it. This was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So did you go back and alter the book based on their feedback? I did. Wow. Yeah, I did. It, it's such a, it's just a different part of your mind as you, as you think about, you know, you were talking about your story a little bit. It's something that you have to, what Stephen King said was, and it, I thought this was really a good idea. He said, when you feel like writing, just write. Don't worry about whether you're ever going to use it or whether it makes any sense, just write. Because when you're in that mode, you'll write stuff and you can come back later and edit it, but don't edit it during the process. Just start typing. And that's good feedback for you is if you ever decide to do it, just start typing. And then come back later with the other part of your brain. <laughs> I'm an engineer by trade. So 
it's a different part, right? Now I got to go back. And, exactly. Okay. What, what am I going to leave in? What am I going to take out? What, how do I introduce this topic? That kind of stuff. Was it hard not to edit yourself as you go along? Cause to me, it, I, that's exactly what I would try to do is, Oh, maybe I should take. Exactly. And actually his other thing was he would go in a room and close the door. Yeah. He doesn't want any distractions. I would actually play a little bit of music classical music because that kind of helps me think but his thing was go in the room and close the door and start writing that wouldn't be me <laughs> go in the room and close the door no no distraction no distractions yeah yeah wow so remind me again what you said was unimpressive about yourself because <laughs> <laughs> i'm not seeing it well let's put it this way even jesus wasn't famous in his own backyard you know and that's that's part of the deal. Strangers will look at it and go, wow. And the kids are like, that's dad. <laughs> well, yeah. Your kids are always going to. Yeah, it's dad. But segueing into that, I would like to get into what kind of advice when you go speak at these public events at schools, what do you tell kids or do you just relay Kevin's story or do you try to offer advice? What does that look like? Good question. I don't offer advice. Okay. At the very beginning, it's kind of another interesting little tidbit here is a few years ago, because my story, I've, I've tightened it up as I go along. And this guy, he's probably 25 years old. He goes, you don't still speak at schools, do you? And I said, yeah, I do. And he goes, you're too old. They're not going to listen to you. And at the time, I was a little, really? But it made me change the way I introduce myself. And I tell them right up front, I'm not here to tell you how you live your life. I'm just here to tell you a story. And as you listen to that story, think about what you want your story to be. I don't give specific advice. I've tried to stay away from that because with kids and with adults, nobody wants to be told how to live their life. Right. Right. Yeah. But at the end, I talk about decision making, how the two most important decisions you're ever going to make are about drugs and alcohol and how those are going to impact your life in ways you can't imagine. And the second thing I talk about is adversity. Bad stuff happens to all of us. It just does. Right. And and the way you handle it will define your life. I'm living proof of that. When when bad stuff happens, this can destroy marriages. This can destroy people. It's how you handle it that matters. And the third thing I talk about is forgiveness. Because it was easy for me to forgive the kids at the party, and it was easy for me to forgive my son, right? But there's one person that was really hard to forgive, and that was me. I heard a pastor say it best once. He said that anger and vengeance lead to one thing, destruction. Forgiveness leads to healing. And I would add to that, sometimes the most important person you need to forgive is yourself. None of us are perfect. The Bible teaches that. Oh, yeah. I agree 100%. But can I ask what you felt you had to forgive yourself for? Because I mean, Kevin had moved out, right? He made the decisions, right or wrong. And so what what part of it did you think you played in this? Or was it just a general? What else could I have done? It's what else could I have done? There's something else that's part of the process is there was something else I could have done. Like if you could have talked him into staying at home longer, but he could have still went to a party that night, you know? Yeah. And and that's, you play what if a lot. 
we did not play the blame game ever. That's great. And, you know, that's actually helped all of us. And I made it clear up front. And, and again, I think that was a God thing. Right. We're not going to sit and blame each other for this. Absolutely. You know, that's, it, it'll destroy you. And there's plenty of examples out there of that. So if parents come up and talk to you about this, what do you say to parents? Because I know like my kids, if I try to, and I do try to have those discussions with them, even the older kids, but about drugs and alcohol, they're like, mom, you're too protective. Mom, you worry too much. I mean, they just poo-poo you kind of. So how do you get through to them? Even if you've tried to walk the walk or you try to talk the talk, kids just seem to have this even older kids i would say even up to 25 at least they think they're invincible and they think it's never going to happen to them so how do you get that besides just telling the story how do you get that across to people 10 feet tall and bulletproof that was kevin <laughs> i agree one of the things that i tell people now and i came across this quite by accident is yeah nobody wants to have that conversation right but and frankly, I tell kids the same thing I tell parents. It's awkward to have that conversation. But as a parent, I mean, you can get Google alerts that talk about alcohol poisoning, poisoning incidents and that kind of stuff. And what I tell parents is have the conversation with your spouse when the kids are in the room. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but kids are always listening. They don't really want to be talked to, but you can have conversations about things you've seen in the news or, you know, these things and they'll listen. They don't want to talk about it, but they'll listen. And I tell kids the same thing. If you're not comfortable saying, Hey, I got a friend that's doing this. Right. Let the parent hear you talking about it on your phone. Right. Right. That opens up the conversation because <laughs> the way I came about it was I had the grandkids in the car one day and we we're talking about taking a trip somewhere and it's just Bev and I, my wife and I talking, but they were in the back seat and they're like, wait, what are you guys talking about? Are we going somewhere? And that's when it occurred to me that that's one way to do it. You know, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. They're little eavesdroppers. All the time. <laughs> yes, they are. And even when they're 25, they're eavesdroppers. <laughs> that's what you want them to do. <laughs> very true. Yes. I want to know what mom and dad are up to, but yeah, that's very true. It's a good way to look at it. So Looking forward, what kind of lights you up? What do you think is in store for you in the future? Or do you think out that far? That's a good question. I don't know what something very good is. And that's really my focus. I've started doing these podcasts because I really didn't have any online presence. I'm sure you've never heard of this story, but it's been on tons of news media things. But I've started doing these podcasts and I'm working with a guy. His name is Jake White. We are the yin and yang of this. He's a young guy who's always wanted to teach kids how to party sober. And I'm an old guy who never thought of doing that. And so we've done a few trial runs with it. And I think it's an interesting combination of me telling a story. And then he gets up there and beats on the drums and talks to them about how they can do things where they don't have to drink. They don't have to do drugs and they can still have fun. I think that's awesome because my husband and I, don't drink. I'm not saying I've never had a drink or I'm against somebody having a drink, Right. but we just don't. And we always wanted to make sure that our kids never saw us drinking because we didn't want them to think, well, mom and dad drink. It's okay for us to drink. And, and we never told them they couldn't. We just said, 
you know, all the safety measures, drink in moderation, don't drink and drive. Right. But they get out in the world and it's a whole different story. The friends that they hang around, I've even seen adults that put peer pressure on the kids to drink and it just kind of destroys you inside because the one thing people don't talk about, which is what happened to your son, is that not only is it dangerous if you drive, but it's toxic. It's literally a toxin to the body and you have too much and horrible things can happen. And then you see these adults pressuring kids to drink and it just, I just don't understand it. So I commend you guys on trying to keep spreading the message to at least be responsible and be careful about how much you put in your body. Yeah, actually, as part of what I talk about in the job that I do, I end up sitting in, I don't go out to bars, although sometimes I go, but I don't drink. Well, I'll have one beer. I tell them, everybody asks me, do I drink one beer? But you sit in a social event or in a bar all night, sober, and you see what happens, right? You see as the night get, goes on, people are just, <laughs> they're being dumber and dumber. I actually have a son-in-law, funny story. He is a cop and he pulled over what he suspected was somebody that was been drinking. Now the two of us sitting here know that if a cop pulls you over and you have a beer in the car, you're going to hide that, right? You'll just hide it. Right. Uh, <laughs> he walks up to the car and the guy's got the beer sitting between his legs. It gets better. So eventually he asked the guy to step out of the vehicle. So for sure now you're going to put it in the console or down on the floor or something. This guy was so drunk. He handed the beer to the cop and asked him to hold it while he got out. Of oh my gosh. <laughs> That's pretty bad. That's what I'm saying is that you don't realize these dumb things that people do. And yeah, alcohol poisoning is part of it, but you get braver and you do stuff you shouldn't do. Yeah. It takes your inhibitions away for sure. Like, I know we didn't talk a lot about what kind of person Kevin was. What was he like growing up? He was one of those kids that always helped people. He was a terrible student, just like his old man. He was a terrible student. Uh -huh. But the teachers always talked about how kind he was and what a good heart he had. He actually befriended a boy in third grade by the name of David. And David was in a wheelchair, and that made it harder for him to make friends. But Kevin was that guy. They made sure that David got out the playground and when they could get him over to his house, they would, he would play with David and he, David didn't even bring the wheelchair in the house. Kevin would just drag him around in the house. It was really kind of entertaining to watch. And he's the guy, when he got his driver's license, he would stop beside the freeway and give somebody a ride if they were broke down or help them change a tire or whatever they needed. He would always help them. But as a student, not so good. That sounds like he was a wonderful kid, though. Yeah, it was fun. Never really had any problems with him. I was going to say, the one thing I do want to mention is that I'd love to come someplace and tell the story in front of kids or adults or both, preferably both, and pretty sure we can make it happen. Oh, yeah. Schools or churches or are there other places that you speak also in general? Yeah. That's pretty awesome. I was going to ask, do you keep in touch with any of Kevin's friends, like his best friend? Yeah. We do. Actually went to his best friend's wedding over in Hawaii here. Oh, wow. In February. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got other friends that when they're in town, the whole crew comes over and we have pizza and sit around and yak. And of course, they're all grown up now and they got kids and that kind of stuff. So it's fun to see it. Yeah, it would be awesome. It's fun to see it. They keep pretty close track of me. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. So is there anything else? 
that we should have brought up? If you don't mind, we can talk about the walk a little more. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Obviously, we had to schedule all that stuff, but there was interesting things that happened along the way. People would stop and talk to me. By the way, I got chased by a lot of dogs. There's no, no such thing as a leech law out there. Like, oh, no, please don't come after me. <laughs> I thought you were going to say bears. So are you on main highways and stuff? Yeah, I couldn't walk on the freeway because I couldn't get an official answer. So it was a little longer walk Okay, to stay off the freeway, but I stayed on regular highways, but not the freeway. It was Utah that was I was going to try to do, but... I couldn't get anybody in Utah to say, yes, that's okay. (laughs) But, you know, you meet people that want to tell you their story. When I tell them why I'm out there, people stop and ask if you need a ride every day. And if it's raining, there'll be six, seven, eight people stop and ask if you need a ride. But everybody has a story. So who stood out to you the most of the people? There were two things that happened that stood out. First one was outside of Flagstaff. I had spoke at Flagstaff High School. And a couple of days later, I, I'm walking and I see the brake lights go on in a car. And I'm like, oh, cool. I'll take a break and talk to this person. And the guy comes up and he said, did you speak at a high school in Flagstaff a couple of days ago? And I said, I did. He said, well, I just want you to know that my son came home that night and he started the conversation. Wow. And he wanted to thank me for it. That's awesome. I'm sure it happened. It's not for me to know everything, but I always appreciate hearing it. The other interesting thing that happened was people were donating along the way, right? They'd say, well, where do I send a donation? Well, you, not my kid. There was a guy outside a page, and I don't know if you're old enough to remember Datsuns before it became Nissan. He was driving this really, really old car, and he stopped to talk to me. <clears throat> older gentleman uh, didn't did not appear to have much money at all, right? He's driving this really old car and kind of disheveled. And we talked for a while and he handed me $5 and said, go get yourself something to eat. And I, I tried to tell him it was okay not to, but uh, my wife that I'm happily married to said, you can't deny him that joy. Uh-huh. You have to take that $5. She just said, take the $5. And it was little things. I mean, I had people bring me brownies and milk and there's just a lot of neat stuff that happened. I can talk about that for another hour, but it's good stuff. I think it's wonderful to hear the stories of people just being good people. Uh, We don't hear that enough anymore. We don't. That's why I talk about that because it's good, but yeah, just get me. If you think the story is worth hearing, um, If they reach out to me, I actually have a recording of exactly what I say. So there's no question. Because sometimes schools are a little hesitant because they're afraid of what you're going to say. Oh, wow. I've got a COVID forced me to do a video. I did a video of exactly what I say. It's not the same as being in person. Right. But it would give them an idea for sure. Yeah. So how can people get in touch with you if they want to connect to you? What's the best way? The easiest way is, I think you can just type in my name is Barry Adkin, B-A, and A-D is in dog. But on Facebook, it's Kevin's Last Walk, all one word. You can reach out to me there. Okay. We have a page. I primarily keep that page up to date. I have a website, kevinslastwalk.com. But I don't know about you, but I found that uh, people just want to go to Facebook to see stuff. <laughs> 
beautiful website. Well, I'm happy to include any of it uh, that you want me to in the show notes. Thank you very much for joining us today and being so vulnerable and open with your story and Kevin's story. And I hope you impact, even I'm sure you've impacted thousands already. I just hope you impact thousands and thousands more. That's the plan. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. You have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. As we wrap up today's episode, I hope Barry sharing the journey of his profound loss and how he has been making something good come out of it ever since has helped you in some way. As we referenced in the episode, Barry wrote himself a letter. It was a letter that he feels that Kevin would have written to him if he could have. In hindsight, I wish I would have asked Barry to read it during our episode. It is very touching. You can see and hear Barry read it on YouTube with the link in the show notes, though. The letter starts at about 6 minutes and 39 seconds in, but I really recommend watching the entire video. It's very short, but it has some major impact. And with Barry's story, a few things really stood out to me. First, it's amazing to me the strength this man has. He relives his son's death over and over. But it is with a purpose, and that purpose is to help save others from the same fate that his son succumbed to. And secondly, I think there's also a healing that takes place as we help others. So I think Barry is finding healing in his journey as well. Of course, he will never get his son back on this earth at least. And that loss will never be filled, but he can still find purpose, joy, and healing along his journey. As always, I hope this episode helps at least one person. And with that, I hope you have a blessed week, my friend. Thank you for listening to The Beauty in the Mess. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite pod player. If you have any questions or comments, any topic ideas you would like to hear about, or you think you would be a great guest on the show, you can reach me directly at thebeautyinthemess.com. Thanks for listening.